Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud, and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Welcome back and happy new year to everybody who has lurched through the weirdness of the last few weeks. Here in Sydney, Australia, the case is multiplying uh, almost quicker than we can count. And it's been it's made for a very interesting Christmas break, unlike even last year. So look, I hope everybody out there is staying safe and optimistic because hopefully we are nearing the crest of this giant wave that's upended all of our lives. And I'm just, yeah, who knows what happens next, but I want to give a huge heartfelt thank you to all of the All Fired Up listeners who have faithfully stuck by me during this pandemic and to continue to send messages of support, outrage and love for the podcast. And if you love what you're hearing, please subscribe so you don't miss episodes as they pop out. I have such a jam-packed year for you. I'm very excited. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have a moment in your day and you're feeling generous, maybe give us a quick five-star review so this message can get out to more and more people and we can topple diet culture for good. And of course, it is diet culture high season, so things are probably outraging you left, right and centre. I know I have kind of a wrist strain from pressing block and report on all of these bloody weight loss ads that keep popping up in my social media. It is worse than it ever has been before. And I really hope you guys are also blocking and reporting as a scam or inappropriate these disgusting attempts to get hold of our money because no matter what time of year it is, diets still don't work. And no matter how much these places are claiming not to be diet, if they're selling weight loss, they're selling weight loss. It doesn't matter what they're trying to pretend. It's absolutely outrageous. I normally start the show by some free stuff, but I've got a really exciting announcement to make. I've been working on this amazing product with the GWM Candle Company, who I encourage you to look at on Insta. And I have come up with the antidote to diet culture stench. Uh, So everybody, I introduce to you anti-diet room spray. Yes, anti-diet spray. uh, Let's face it, living in diet culture stinks. But fear not, our glorious anti-diet spray banishes the loathsome stench of fat phobia. With just one beautiful spritz, you can replace the toxic fumes of weight loss worship with this empowering mist, which is infused with white sage, lemon, and lavender. It is so cleansing. It smells so delicious. You will not believe that pushing back against diet culture can smell so good. And I have created this gorgeous product for use in diet culture emergencies. So basically unwanted weight talk, conversations in the lunchroom, someone giving you an appearance focused comment, 
encountering those idiots in in social media land or another weight loss ad popping up basically the entire month of January before or after, or let's face it, even during fat phobic medical appointments. Anytime you need to connect with your anti-diet power, one spritz from the anti-diet spray will connect you and ground you. I'm so, so excited about this product because it's something I've been dreaming about creating for years. So you can buy it right now. It's for sale through the Flourish Kirribilli website which is flourishkirribilli.com.au or on the Insta account, you can go to untrapped underscore au and click on the link in my bio and up your pop with merch. So go grab yourself some. It is a wonderful way to celebrate and connect back with your glorious self. Before we get on with the show, I want to give a quick shout out to everyone in the Untrapped community. Untrapped is the amazing online group and masterclass that I co-created with other anti-diet health practitioners here in Australia. And we've been running since 2017. This community has really gelled and bonded during the pandemic. And it's just lovely to be connected with all of these people. So look, if you are struggling with life in diet culture and you're looking to connect with some like-minded people who are pushing back and not taking it anymore, think of joining us at Untrapped. You can find out more by going to untrapped.com.au, but we'd love to see you there. Okay, on with the show. I am so pumped, so excited to bring you this amazing guest. Reagan Chastain is a speaker, writer, and a thought leader, let's face it, in the health at every size movement. She always is speaking up against weight stigma and and speaking in favor of weight-inclusive healthcare and also sticking up for fitness for people in larger bodies. She's written so, so much. She's the author of the blog, Dances with Fat, and she's also the co-author of the Hey, health sheets, which are an amazing resource, which she will talk about a little more in our interview. She's the co-founder of the Fit Fat. She's been in a documentary film called Fatitude, America the Beautiful 2, and A Stage for Size. She's a multi-certified health coach and a fitness professional, three-time national champion dancer, a triathlete, and a two-time marathoner who has a Guinness world record for the heaviest woman ever to complete a marathon. I'm so pumped to bring you this conversation. So without any further delay, let me give you me and a glorious Reagan. So Reagan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh no, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so pumped. Tell me what's firing you up at the moment. Oh, right now I'm fired up about this idea that five to 10% uh, weight loss causes clinically meaningful health benefits. (laughs) And I'm fired up about it because like, it's, you know, it's a misunderstanding that gets repeated over and over. And it recently happened to me. I was on a show in the States called the doctors and we were talking about weight neutral healthcare. And then of course they had a doctor on who comes from a weight loss perspective. And she kept refuting my, uh, the studies that I was talking about by just saying like, well, sort of everybody knows, and I'm sure I could find studies. And she kept saying this thing like, oh, five to 10% weight loss produces clinically meaningful benefits. And so like the truth about this is that in fact, that number comes from attrition and not from any kind of clinical study. So (laughs) it started, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it started here in the States. There was the Metropolitan Life Health Insurance Tables and it gave very specific weights based on your height and your frame, but doctors couldn't get people to lose enough weight to hit these targets. So they were like, well, let's say... 20%. And it was literally like throws dart. It did not come from any kind of research. It just seemed like a number that people could remember. It seemed like a significant amount of weight loss to them, but they couldn't get people to lose 20%. So they went down to 10. 
but they couldn't get people to lose 10%. And so the, you know, average in what happens in weight loss studies is people lose weight short term in the first like year or so, and they gain it back long term. And the amount of weight they typically lose before they start regaining is somewhere around five to 8%. And so they literally by attrition, like, you know, move the goalpost and declare victory said, okay, well, five to 10% weight loss is clinically meaningful. This is not based on any kind of clinical studies. And in fact, Man and Tomiyama in 2013, which was a while ago, actually mm-hmm. went through this in great detail. And what they found was that the health benefits that people experienced weren't actually linked to the weight loss. They were linked to the behavior changes they made. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, I see your dog is on board with this and I am on she board is, too. She's outraged. She's outraged. I, she's like, thank you for that. <laughs> Good support. But yeah, so what they found was that, and I mean, this makes absolute sense. People make behavior changes. Yeah as part of these, you know, programs and they experience a little bit of temporary weight loss and they experience some health changes. But because we are so focused on this weight loss paradigm, we credit the weight loss for the health changes, even though it's small and simultaneous yep. with the health changes, ignoring the fact that the behavior changes came before both of them. Oh my God. This is, Dolly's outraged and I'm just going to let her out. <laughs> okay. Okay. Dog is now in crate. All is (laughs) is under control. So you, I mean, everything you're saying is blowing my mind. So essentially the amount of weight people are being advised to lose for health benefits is based on the shittiness of uh, weight loss diets, (laughs) i.e. they don't work. So the goalposts were shifted down not because they were like sparklily like finding out that you only need to lose this amount of weight to get health benefits, but like literally that's all that is possible. Exactly. Unbelievable. And then attributing the health benefits from just a fat cell shrinking as opposed to like the human being actually doing a shitload of things. Exactly. And this is what is like incredibly frustrating. And what gets me so fired up is how much this misinforms people and how much it causes people to disengage from their own self-care and health journey. So look, health is not an obligation. It's not our barometer of worthiness. It's not entirely within our control. And I always want to be really clear about that. But for people who are like, how can I best support my body? If we were honest and said like, oh, there's like a lot of things you could do. You could get more sleep, have more social connection, do a little movement, drink a little water, like here are things that would nourish you. It would be so much easier for people to accomplish that. But what we tell them is you have to lose weight and five to 10%. And the thing that's super frustrating is that they're not keeping that off in almost all cases, right? 95% or more of people end up gaining that weight back up to 66% gain back more than they lost. So instead of telling people what the studies show, and we're talking about Matheson et al, um, Way et al, the Cooper Institute Longitudinal Studies, Gazer and and Gotti that just came out this year, Matheson and Tomiyama, 2007, 2013, like this is well-documented and for a long time. You are like the the encyclopedia of pushing back against weight loss bullshit. (laughs) Well, I mean, I just think it's important to be honest. And, you know, it's something that also happened on the doctors is I did that. And the Dr. Um, Jampolis said, oh, well, I'm sure I could find 15 studies that say the opposite, which is a really common response, right? Like, first of all, it's not ethical to treat patients based on what you assume you might be able to find if you actually looked at the research. And the research is really terrible. And that's something else too, because people think I'm always bashing healthcare providers and sometimes I very much am. So if healthcare providers are relying on studies as primary sources, which is what they're taught to do, right? Because they're a doctor, they don't have time to read the whole study. The conclusions are deeply misleading. So you'll see things like everyone who complied lost 5% of their body weight. And what it doesn't say is 
64% of the people dropped out of the study. <laughs> Most right. people left the building. The people, yeah. the people who stayed in, like white knuckled 5% for a few months and then we stopped the study. Exactly. Mm-hmm. My absolute favorite, and by favorite, I mean thing that makes me want to like set things on fire is when they say all participants gained weight, but remain below their starting weight. And what they actually did was just stop counting at year two. <laughs> Right. So like they lost 10 pounds in year one, gained back five pounds in year two. And then they just stopped counting and said, oh, look, everybody's below their goal weight. And like my background is research methods and statistics. And so these are things that like I want to say this is like day one research methods class stuff. And it is. But I feel like even if you were sick that day, they would still expect you to understand that like if two thirds of your study group nopes out, you're responsible for caring about that. Uh Like you're not just allowed to semantically erase them in the conclusions. And that if a a variable is going straight up. You're not allowed to stop counting and act like it just leveled off there miraculously. But that's exactly what happens. People yes. in weight science, when they like that doctor, whoever she was saying, I could find 15 studies. I could find 15 really shitty studies that stopped early <laughs> and ignored the facts. And then yeah. I could keep my, my belief system going. I yeah. Mean, oh, how annoying that you were on. Like, that's a fairly big show that the doctors to be, yeah. um, I mean, that's a great platform for the anti-diet approach. But then to get, I'm assuming she was in a small body. Miss, Miss yes. Sister. Yep. Yep. Smaller bodied white female. White female with, I think, books about weight loss. Like I think she <laughs> sells weight loss. Yeah. So no vested interest at all in um, yeah. not listening to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just so frustrating. And she, I mean, it was, we were treated pretty well. I had, I was on and then um, with Dr. Greg Dodell, who's an endocrinologist who comes from a weight neutral perspective. Is he the only one in the planet? Like he's a nice no. endocrinologist. That's so he's, cool. gr- he's a great endocrinologist. Um, and I mean, in terms of endocrinologists, I don't know a lot of others, um, but I know other physicians who come from Hayes perspectives and there are whole clinics that do now. So we're making headway, but yeah, yeah. I knew they originally said it was just going to be, um, Greg and I. And uh-huh. so we talked the night before and I was like, look, this isn't my first show. The contract we signed said basically they can do anything they want. I would be shocked if there wasn't somebody else brought on from the weight loss point of view. And indeed five minutes before the show mm-hmm. started to record, they were like, oh yeah, we have a friend of the show coming on to join your segment. Oh my God. I like, yeah. I am not surprised by that at all. That is just outrageous though, like not to inform you that this, because I actually had a quick review of that um, ep- uh, well segment and mm-hmm. I noticed that the little picture like behind the doctor said like it's something like a, a weight debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like Yeah, which like points for rhyming, but that's not actually what this is. rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a debate about bloodletting, you know, it's evident. Yeah, except that everybody's on the side of bloodletting and there's one person like, can we please look at the research for the love of all that's holy? (laughs) I know, but that is so frustrating. And like, it's lovely that you are on national shows and there's endo on national shows and there's Hayes clinics and there's the, it it definitely is starting to uh, catch on. But yeah, this immutable force of people who are like, but it rhymes and I want it to be a debate and I want to kind of keep my my books being sold. I want to keep my research. Uh, it's And of course, as we you have blogged about and I've talked about on podcasts, there's massive commercial industries who are pushing yeah. this. 
as well. But like at at what point do we think this is like, where do you think this is going? It's such an interesting thing because, I mean, it's called the practice of medicine for a reason and mistakes have been made, right? Heroin was originally prescribed as a non-addictive substitute for morphine. Like, oops, <laughs> that was not good, right? There's mistakes are made. And I don't mean to make light of the people who were harmed by that. I really don't. When, as we're learning more about the human body and more about science, the mistakes that are made harm people. But what seems to have happened here is an unwillingness to admit being wrong. Yes. And I think that's because of how much the for-profit weight loss industry has allied itself and wriggled itself into the healthcare industry. And it was a brilliant game plan for profit because at some point people were like, I'm not selling weight loss is better because you'll be more attractive. Yeah. Wasn't getting it done. Yeah. But if it's, you know, your doctor says you have to lose weight loss to lose weight, to be healthy, that gets it done. Right. Then people believe it. And the cycle that happens is the diet industry tells these lies. People internalize this information, healthcare providers, everyone else. And then the critical step is we enforce the standard on others. Right. So when I go online and make, here's some research and here's some information and people just come out of the woodwork to freak out, you know, on a Facebook comment section, like they become violent. It's that's those people have allowed themselves or have subconsciously become a marketing force for the weight loss industry. Uh, yes. And so that's how it keeps perpetuating itself. And so every person who gets liberated from that takes away part of that marketing force, whether it is a healthcare provider, whether it is like your Aunt Gertie at the holidays, like whoever it is, that to me right now, that's the process is people being liberated and then understanding and then starting to talk about these mm. things. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's collective, isn't it? It's, it's collective growth, like people connecting with each other and yeah. we've got to do it, you know, in, in our real lives because we can't do it in institutions yet or yeah. universities yet, you know, there's, it's still occurring. Yeah. And there are, I mean, a lot of progress is made. I started giving talks to universities and healthcare practitioners about this in 2009. And people have been doing it for years before I was. But right, my personal experience, when I started doing them, especially for healthcare practitioners, typically they were forced to be there. Typically they were incredibly hostile. And I really honed a presentation that was entirely research-based. So I stopped talking about feelings or patient engagement because I learned that they were happy to blame a lack of engagement on fat patients, right? Well, they don't come to the doctor. That's their own fault. And so I just really targeted the evidence and started to have a little bit of change. And sometimes, you know, I'd get feedback. Yeah, I've been thinking about what you said. And, and now, though, I'm being requested, like, in the last couple months, I've spoken at the medical schools of the University of Utah and the University of Colorado, Mm -hmm. I've spoken to practitioners at Kaiser Permanente, which is a huge healthcare provider here in the United States. And like people actively wanted me to be there. People self-selected into some of them were like the whole class, but some of them were self-selected and there really is a difference and a change. And I think people aren't willing to let go yet of the idea that losing weight is a path to health, but they seem to me more receptive to like, it's not working though. So like, what else can we do? Or like, we shouldn't delay care while somebody tries to lose weight. We should give care immediately at point of incident. And then, so they're not ready to let go of the weight loss paradigm, but a lot more people I think are paradigm straddling. Oh yeah. Lots of, lots of fences up, fence poles up the asses of academics yeah, so <laughs> and health professionals right now. So yeah. So we just got to kind of pull them all the way over into this paradigm, but I feel like there's, things are getting a bit better. 
Oh my gosh. So that's really a great perspective to notice like in the 12 years you've been doing this, that it's shifted. I've noticed a shift here in Australia as well. Like it just feels like momentum is growing, but how did you, how did you start? Like how, how did you kind of come to be standing there in 2009 full of (laughs) studies in front of a hostile audience? So um, my own journey into this actually came, I didn't know there was a community out there, like a size acceptance or health at every size community. I was actually looking for the best diet and I had been spending years like yo-yo dieting and my background was in research methods and statistics. So I was like, I should really bring that to bear on this situation. So I decided to do a literature review of all the studies I could find about weight loss and find the diet that worked the best. So are you at university or you're just doing a lit review because you're a massive nerd? Because I'm a massive nerd. At the time I was a business operations consultant. <laughs> oh my God. So I, like, it's, I'm so like fresh. I didn't even write it up. Oh, right. Gosh. Like I don't even have it when it was like before it was lo- like in the early two thousands, like I don't, like I didn't cause I wasn't at school. So there's no grade. So I just did it. But yeah, so I, I'm just a massive nerd. And yeah, what I found reading all these studies was there was not a single study. No. Where more than like a tiny fraction of people were succeeding at long-term weight loss. And usually that weight loss was like five or 10 pounds, which like uh-huh. not for nothing, I could lose that amount of weight right now with a loofah and a haircut. I could do a good poo and then it's all done. Exactly. So like, I don't need two years of an intervention to make that happen. But so yeah, so I was like, okay, I'm a fan of math and science and logic. So this isn't it. What is there? And so that's what got me looking for how do we support health outside of weight loss? And then in 2009 or 2004, I started competitive ballroom dancing. Of course. And I really thought that it would be about my dancing, which was so naive. And so I started getting these horrible fat shaming comments from the judges. And um, at some point, a judge sort of pinned me against an elevator and said, you know, I couldn't stand to look at you. And she said it over and over again because my dress had spaghetti straps and my arms were bare. And so in that moment, I finally, I just said, um, I probably won't choose to change the dress, but I appreciate you taking the time to tell me it's such a problem for you. Oh my God. And she got super mad. Like I thought she was going to take a swing at me, maybe mad. And then she she was like red. And then she just walked away. And I had, I've always been sort of social justice minded. I did my first protest in kindergarten. I um, had done, I came out in Texas in the mid nineties in college. And so I'd done a lot of queer and trans activism, a lot of working in solidarity, anti-racism work, but I never thought I was on my own personal journey at that point of like health at every size and sort of size acceptance. But I never thought of fat people as an oppressed group. And so in literally in that moment, after that woman stomped away, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, this is not just about me. This is I'm part of a group who are systemically oppressed and mistreated. And I didn't want to be a, I just want to be a fat dancer. Right. But I was going to have to be a fat activist to get it done. And so that's what got me started. I started on like live journal and then moved to in 2009, I think, to um, WordPress. Yeah. And started the Dances with Fat blog. Dances with Fat blog, which was. First of all, you're amazing. But I don't know how you think. Like, I'm the kind of person who thinks of comebacks like that three years later. <laughs> so it's a double-edged sword. I've always been the person who has a snappy comeback. But the the other, the other end of it is, oh, that was witty, but I shouldn't have said it to the dean of my college. Like, so there's definitely times when I wish I had been slower with the comeback as well. <laughs> oh, my God. But we, you were one of the first blogs I found. Oh, wow. Yeah, in this, I am also a massive nerd. And when I went into private practice as a psychologist, everyone hated their bodies. Everyone wanted to lose weight. Heaps of people had eating disorders. So I'm like, well, 
I don't know how to help people lose weight because, you know, I'd had my own weight cycling story. So I went off and researched. I'm like, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a good clinical psychologist. I'll go and like do a lip review. And I'm same fucking thing. I'm like, yeah, what the hell? Nothing works. And then I had this like weird gray area time of like drifting and going, I don't know what the hell to do. And then I found Dr. Rick Korsman, who's an Aussie GP. He wrote a book called, if not dieting, then what? And he was like my portal in, but you were like one of the first blogs. And I think he even mentioned your blog in, in the training. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. I had no idea. I know it's so cool. So it's funny how we get into it. Like the pathways in mine was kind of academic like yours, but you you had the extra layer of like suddenly realizing, oh my gosh, it is an oppression thing. And oh my gosh, I'm in it. And I just, yeah. I just got it like a hate act. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And it, so I started the blog and what's incredibly embarrassing about the early blog post, somebody just told me, oh, I read your early blog post and please don't do that. Um, but like, I didn't know there was a community. So these were like my original thoughts that I was having. And I didn't know other people had had these thoughts like since before I was born. And so they're like these, but I started, I was just going to talk about my own personal journey as a dancer. And then I was like, well, let's talk about this from a civil rights perspective. And then let's look at like, how many negative things do I get? And that's what happened with Dances With That was that I wrote a blog post. I think it's 367,170 unhelpful things. That number might be wrong, but basically in a very unscientific way, I tracked how many negative messages I got, I've got about my body in 24 hours and then extrapolated that to a year. Seriously. And that was the number. I think it was 367,170. But again, I may be making that number up. It's been a while since I visited that. But then somebody found that, like, I don't know who, because I had like six blog readers, including my mother at this point. And then somebody found it and submitted it to Jezebel. Oh my God. And they reposted it and I got 10,000 views in one day. And I was absolutely certain that was the most people who would ever see my blog. And then they asked for, and I didn't, at the time, I didn't even have a subscribe button. I had nothing. Like I literally was just writing for my friends. And so my friend who was in IT and SEO was like, let's fix this. Um, let's get a way for people to subscribe and to figure out who you are. And, and then um, they asked for a follow-up piece. And that's kind of how my blog ended up gaining popularity was through Jezebel. Oh my God. And now we've got way more than 10,000 people rating. Yeah. I've done, done a little <laughs> better than that now, but, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I, every person who clicks on my blog or my weight and health care newsletter, like that's an honor to me. And to hear that it was one of the first things you found, I'm, I've just totally like, yeah, it's yeah. And now I send basically yeah. all my clients like, to you as well. <laughs> it's you not only do the science stuff, but you also do the like I can dance and I can run a marathon and, you know, you clearly value physical activity and movement and like beautiful dancing and stuff like that. And it's really important because we don't see that. Yeah. It's hard and it's getting easier, but it has traditionally been difficult, especially before the internet to find role models. I always want to say with fitness, like again, not an obligation, not a barometer of worthiness. There's a thing called good fatty, bad fatty privilege, which is the idea that fat people who do the quote unquote right things like participate in fitness are somehow better or deserve better treatment. And so I always want to be clear that that is complete bullshit right? I've done both completing a marathon, having a Netflix marathon, morally equivalent activities, right? And if you go slow enough, they're both a way to spend an entire Sunday. But, um, but yeah, I, one of the things I try to do, cause I do like to do fitnessy things as a hobby, many of them ridiculous. And so I like, think about it as like trying to create space in the fitness world, like with my physical body. And so like, that's why I went for the Guinness record with the marathon was so that there would be, this record would exist. And I, I made the record. So it would be broken, hopefully a lot. 
Oh my God. I mean, again, like, of course you not only did a marathon, but it's the Guinness World Record <laughs> holder for doing a marathon. I mean, I don't even know how you get in contact with the Guinness people. <laughs> did you ring them up and say, hi, I think I'm thinking of doing this? I know somebody suggested it. So I did a marathon with my best friend and I did it because I was in a, I had a freak accident and injured my neck. And I couldn't do like any of the things I like to do, like dancing, weightlifting. I'm a fast twitch athlete. Yeah. And so the doctor was like, you can basically for the next 20-ish weeks, you can walk. And I'm just not like, just going for a walk is not fun for me personally. Totally valid thing to do, just not my thing. And so I was like, if I don't have some kind of goal, I'm not doing this. I know myself. And so I found out that in 20 weeks, there was a marathon in Seattle, which is where my best friend lives. And so I emailed him and said, do you want to do a marathon with me? And like a very good best friend, he emailed back, I'm in. <laughs> immediately. Cool. And so that's how I did the first one. And then after I did the first one and swore, I would never, ever, ever, ever do it again. Somebody <laughs> said, Oh, there's actually, there's a Guinness world record, but it's all gender category. So you could ask them to make a category for cis women. And then like you, and what I thought was that I would like contact them and be like, here's my marathon time. And they'd be like, Oh, congrats. Here's <laughs> your certificate. No, you have to, you can't do it retroactively. Oh God. So I had to do a second marathon. Cause you have to have video of the whole thing. You have to have witnesses. Like it was, I think my, my partner, Julianne, my fiance, who was coordinating the whole thing from a van in the freezing cold worked harder than I did on that yeah. marathon day to get everything done and coordinated and take care of it. But yeah, it was a, it was a journey. Oh my God. That's so cool. And the other thing I noticed is with you, is like the amount of pushback from trolls and just like really nasty humans. And that must be, I want to say, I, I wish that didn't happen to anyone. But to see it happen yeah. to you really is, it really upsets me because like, go, go and find something else to do. Men? Yeah. Literally anything. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I call them my there before the grace of whatever fan club. Cause like, if you spend that much time on me, you're a fan as far as I'm concerned, like misguided though you may be. And I, the positive to me is that through whatever combination of like luck and nature and nurture and personality and privilege, it's something that I can handle. And so I would rather they come for me than for somebody who it's going to cause them to stop doing their work or it's going to intrinsically injure them. And it's been going on for so long now. Like on, I know it was a day in May in 2012, I got, they like coordinated so that there were all these different websites and groups and Reddit and stuff who were coordinated. And so they all emailed me or left blog messages or message, you know, on the same day. And so I got over 5,000 comments on my blog and they like all said, like, kill yourself. Oh God. Um, and so like <laughs> when it was happening, cause I woke up and I had like 200 comments and that's rarely good. It's very oh. rare that I just have 200 comments out of nowhere. Right. So that's usually a trolling. And then it just kept going. And so I really feel like they did themselves a disservice by kind of desensitizing me. Okay. Like when it's so much, it's like when you like play the penis game and you say the word so much that like penis stops having it. It's like that. Like, oh my God, it's so many people. Mm -hmm. This no longer has meaning to me except to say like, what a shame that this is what your life has devolved to. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's about them, isn't it? It's totally, yeah. yeah. Just the cruelty of the internet astounds me. Yeah. Uh, but you, phenomenal. <laughs> I hope that, oh, geez. It's actually like I kind of get lost for words with what people have to go through. Yeah, it's and I get it's a lot better for me because of the privilege that I have. I'm white, cisgendered, currently able-bodied, currently neurotypical. So I have a lot of privilege for people who are out here doing this work without the kind of privilege that I do. It's it can be much, much worse. 
Yeah. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that, I think, is just related to misogyny. That's like literally, it's not, they're definitely not concerned with health. No. <laughs> These people. <laughs> no, no, no one who like suggests that you self-harm is concerned with your health. Like that's super obvious that again, even if you missed the first day of whatever class that would be taught in, I think you'd probably still know. But yeah, it's this misogyny and the intersection of misogyny and weight stigma and then often ableism and healthism on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just incredibly sad and incredibly gross and incredibly harmful. Yeah. And on the other side of that, just your popularity is encouraging, right? Like imagining how many people's lives you've touched through various things that you've done. Do you think of that? Like, it help you? <laughs> it freaks me out, honestly. So, you know, I mean, my work is standing on the shoulders of people who have been doing it since long before I was born. It's standing with people who are doing it right now with far less privilege than I have. So I always try to like remember that. Um, but yeah, the idea that anybody is like, oh, I'm a fan of yours just freaks me out. Like, I just don't think of it because I'm just like at home typing on my computer right. about stuff and breaking down studies. Um, but it is like, it's something that's really comforting. It's something that it's like, this is, I'm very lucky that I'm saying these things and that there are people on the other end who are responding back and listening and who are being supported like that. I recently had a um, cancer scare. And so like, as I was like trying to like deal with the uncertainty while we were figuring it out, I realized like, look, if this was it, like I have a life that touched people. Like people have reached out to me and said to me, like you changed my life for the better. And like, so I'm kind of at peace with that, you know, like I hope to be able to do a lot more and yeah, the cancer scare, you know, right. yeah. the cancer scare was like the best possible, you know, scenario for the outcome. But so I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. But, um, but just knowing that, like that, I think that was the first time that that really gave me like some real peace around just sort of my life and what I'm doing. Yeah. Being an activist is yeah. an advocate, a- activist, ally. It's different. <laughs> yeah. I joke sometimes that I have a dream job that I wish didn't exist. Uh huh. You know, because too. like, yeah, right. Like, given what is happening in the world, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah. But I wish this wasn't happening, and then I could just go be like a mediocre stand-up comedian somewhere, and like that would be fine. So, yeah. <laughs> so you you've written a book as well. Yeah, I wrote a book years ago called Fat the Owner's Manual. And my goal was, it was when I I had my blog and I wanted to have something that people could like have and hold and it had all like the basics in it. Because I wrote, I blogged about a lot of different things. So I was like, let's get all kind of the basic concepts together. And one thing that I think is a little bit sad is how much it's still applicable today. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't remember exactly when it was. It was in sort of the early 2010s, but not enough has changed since I wrote that book. I wish it was so completely out of date that it was useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, you could laugh at it and go remember that. Yeah. Can you remember when we had to talk about that? Yeah. And that's not the case yet, but hopefully soon. Uh, um, and in that, there's something called the underpants rule. <laughs> can you explain? Sure. So it was my way of talking about the fact that our health isn't somebody else's business unless we ask them to make it their business. So like I'm the boss of my underpants, you're the boss of your underpants. So when it comes to personal choices, we get to make those choices for ourselves, whether that's about like the prioritization and path we choose to health or, you know, what behaviors we engage in. And with the understanding that these things are impacted by, by privilege, by oppression, by different situations. So someone dealing with a chronic illness, their choices may be different than someone who's not not dealing with that. But it was that idea that like, 
it doesn't matter what you think about my health. Like you're welcome to think whatever you want, but if you want to be around me, you're 100% responsible for keeping those thoughts to yourself. I love that. Yeah. It's like the underpants rule is like, it's none of your fucking business. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks. And to be clear, this is not about like, so because trolls try to take it. Well, underpants rule, I can be like as racist as I want to be like, no, no, no. Like what? that's not oh. a personal choice. That's oppression. Those aren't the same. So I always want to like put that little disclaimer, like personal choices is what we're talking about here. Oh, God, the trolls. Yeah. Misrepresenting. But I love that. I think that that's a really nice way of thinking about stuff because when it comes to that weight health thing, which, because I think, yeah, healthism is like rampant mm-hmm. at the moment, like in the, maybe in the 1960s, 1970s, it was the thin ideal that was rampant as a mm-hmm. means of um, establishing like the, the weight hierarchy. But now it's, I'm just concerned about your health and that the right. healthism that comes with that is just next level. Yeah. And massively hypocritical. Yeah. So when you look at the people that we like, celebritize and worship athletes, rock stars. These are people who are not prioritizing their health. Like here in the U.S., American football is built around athletes risking their short and long-term physical and mental health in the hopes that their team will someday score enough points to win a piece of jewelry, right? That's the thing, like that Super Bowl ring. And this week we celebrate, right? All of the injuries, all of like the long-term mental health, the fact that most of these players are broke within two years. So they do become a drain. And again, this isn't, that's not a real thing, right? There's no thing as being a drain on society because of your health. That's not real. Mm -hmm. But in terms of looking at the hypocrisy, people who complain about like the cost of fat people, which is also like a super messed up thing, are not complaining about the cost of sports injuries, which are billions of dollars a year for sports. People don't need to be playing. Yeah, I know. Right. Nobody needs to do a marathon and we get a lot of injuries doing one that you wouldn't get if you were just doing like 30 minutes of gentle movement a day. Yeah. We don't, we but get there's... angry about some things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah so to wait. Exactly. So health isn't becomes this thin veil where if we can make it about health, then we can be as, we can have as much weight stigma as we want. Yeah. We can be as, as big assholes as we need to be in the next right. veil. Yeah. Yeah. But in truth, like health is a hundred percent, just not a barometer of worthiness. It doesn't matter as like for fat people, for example, it doesn't matter why we're fat. Doesn't it matter their health impacts of being fat. Like we have the right to be treated without shame, stigma, bullying, or oppression period. Mm, and to enjoy excellent healthcare. Right. We have access. We should have equal access to the world, including healthcare, regardless, just like Shaquille O'Neal got knee surgery. Right. Here's somebody who for sure caused his injury and who was returning to the lifestyle that would make his uh, knee surgery less time, be less, you know, be subpar in an outcome. Mm -hmm. And that was fine. Of course it's fine. Right. Because he wanted to play sports like he wanted to throw a ball in a hoop. And for that, he can do anything like we'll spend as much money as it as it costs for him to be able to continue to play a game for a living. But like for somebody who needs knee surgery, who's fat, who needs it for basic life mobility. Oh, well, you cause this and your outcome might not be as good as a thin person. So you don't get this surgery. It's so fucked up. The same thing happens here in Australia. It's it's absolutely outrageous. And especially this um, directive that you need to lose a certain amount of weight, like jump through a hoop before you earn or deserve even a seat at the surgeon's desk. Right. And it's super obvious how sketchy this is when you look at the fact that these, the amount of weight you need to lose is typically a percentage 
which means that someone who comes in at a certain weight and loses a percentage will get the surgery, even if someone who comes in at their ending weight would be denied the surgery and told that they have to lose. This is not anything to do with outcomes. And when we look at, I, there's a whole collection, like on the Hayes Health Sheets, on the resources, there's a collection of, that Deb Bergard put together, of resources for joint replacement denial, mm. which is more helpful in the States because of the way our healthcare system works. Our healthcare system is like a dumpster full of shit on fire. Um, but there's this one area where like, this is more helpful, but yeah, it's just completely ridiculous, completely healthist. And what it says is fat bodies are less valuable, more riskable than Mm. thin bodies. Yeah. And so is this some of the impetus behind the Hayes health sheets? And can you talk a bit about that? About the Hayes health sheets? Yeah. 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 So this is something so Several years ago, I emailed Dr. Louise Metz, who's an internal medicine physician and a fully like haze-based trans-affirming practice. And the subject of my email was possibly terrible idea. (laughs) And I was like, I have this idea. I want people to have like a sheet for like a diagnosis that would give the weight neutral care the way that fat phobia is involved, that they could just like download and like, if they're a practitioner, they can use it. If they're a patient or advocate, they can take it to the practitioner. And um, she was like, no, I really like this idea. And so we then got Tiana Dodson on board, who's a health coach and also does web development. And so we worked on this project for a year and our process is I draft them. And then uh, Dr. Metz goes over them uh, and adds her expertise, fixes mistakes I've made. Cause I'm not a doctor. I'm not a healthcare practitioner. I mean, so that research can only take me so far. So, and then, um, Tiana publishes them. And so in March of, I think 2020, we launched them. And so we've got unforgettable month to, to launch anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it was, I think that's right. I am terrible with dates and time. So if someone's like fact checking me, let me know if I'm getting these wrong. Um, but yeah, so it was this huge outpouring from people who are like, oh my gosh. And we, you know, I've always, I needed this, like, because so many fat people get told, oh, like fat caused this Mm. and weight loss is the solution. And that's never the case. Yeah. Right. Weight loss is never the solution. There's always Thin people get all the same health issues that fat people do. So being thin or thinner can neither be a sure preventative or a sure cure. No, but it will surely add a whole heap of other shit on your plate that you probably exactly. had a really difficult time. Right. So good. I, I and like care. Pays health sheets um, for that reason. And I think we need something similar in Australia for sure. We need one in every single country in the world. We shouldn't need them at all. Yeah. But just, you know, the fact that we need this pushback yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. Here's all again. It's like it's what, like what you did in 2009. Yeah. Dived in. You got all of the research, and now you're sharing them with people to make a change in their lives. Yeah. And just to you know to get some support and practitioners too. You know, it's like I understand you think that weight loss is a cure for or a treatment for type two diabetes, but you're wrong. And here's why. And here's what else there is. So like, mm. let's try to treat our patients patients from an evidence based perspective. And so anyone can go and get these health haze sheets. Whereabouts are they? Yeah. So it's haze, H-A-E-S, healthsheets.com. And there's a sheet library. So you just look for the diagnosis and then download it. And then there's also a resource and research library. And so you can find everything from like cards to take to the doctor's office with phrasing or to ask you not to weigh in. There's also a research bank that has a ton of studies that you can kind of look into. There's the thing for um, the collection of resources for denial of joint replacement. And then there's a a page that people have found more helpful than I expected them to called why we don't recommend weight loss Mm -hmm. that lays out the case against weight loss as an ethical evidence-based intervention. Oh my God. So not a terrible idea whatsoever, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, if you enjoy, you know, prescribing something that has the opposite of the intended effect the majority of the time and causes harm, then I guess that's like a fun day for you. (laughs) But if not, then here's a bunch of sheets that'll give you some better ideas. Oh my gosh. And and now you started a newsletter as well, the um, Weight and Healthcare Newsletter. Yeah. So it's on Substack. Basically I, in blogging with, on dances with fat, the most like heart wrenching and desperate requests I got were around weight and healthcare. And so it's something I've written about a lot, but it, it can also be really triggering for people to just like get delivered in their inbox. Like, they're expecting my usual rant to get some bullshit. And instead they get like a really intense weight loss thing. And also as I speak to more healthcare practitioners, it's helpful to have somewhere to point them that's very specific. And so I started this newsletter to be specifically about the intersections of weight science and weight stigma and healthcare. And they're coming out twice a week. Yeah. And like, when do you sleep or do you... <laughs> What's happening there? (laughs) Not a great sleeper. Um, No, it's, you know, I, before I started the newsletter, I, I wrote a lot. Uh And so I have like pieces that will be helpful at any time. And then when stuff happens, I can write a piece immediately and sort of insert it into the schedule. And I am somebody who I'm really a fast writer because I'm not really a writer. Like it's when people say, oh, you're a writer. I'm like, nah, I'm more like a talker with a keyboard. Okay. Yeah. And so basically, you know, as I, the way that I think about these things, it's easy for me to write about them pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. See, that is a superpower because it takes (laughs) me, I'm like writing constipated. It takes me a long time, like a casserole, like it just (laughs) in the slow cooker. And I, I just admire people who are so prolific and you are definitely one of those. Yeah. I also like super got over being incredibly worried about typos or the weight in healthcare newsletter. I'm a little more careful, but on the blog, I was like, if interestingly, I the my folks in Australia who read the blog would email me with the typos before the American readers would start to read it. So I'd have them all fixed. <laughs> There's like this amazing group of people who are like reading and also like being kind editors of my work. So that was really for a period of years, that was really like a cool way to interact with folks. But Thank yeah, you, spell checkers. Thank you so much. Much forever. You saved me. What do you think about like you mentioned earlier, like this kind of drain on the healthcare system argument that we hear a lot? And I've noticed lately certain organizations in particular putting together um, calculations of the cost mm-hmm. of, of uh, having larger people exist on the planet. And I just think it's full of shit. Do you? So it's it's eugenics is what it is, right? Anytime you're trying to calculate how much a certain group of people cost so that you can argue for their eradication, like that is, that's the, that's eugenics. That's what that is, (laughs) period. Um, But also it's really disingenuous because look, when anytime we're looking at the health outcomes of fat people, we're looking at the health outcomes of weight stigma Uh, and weight cycling mm -hmm. and unequal healthcare access. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that's never controlled for in studies. It's never talked about in these cost calculations. But when we look at the research, a tremendous amount of harm is done by these three things, which are perpetuated by the, you know, government wars on obesity, on the, you know, by healthcare providers, by the healthcare system in general. And so we have no idea what fat people's healthcare outcomes would look like if we weren't constantly, constantly subjected to Mm. weight stigma and weight cycling Mm. and healthcare inequality. Mm, Yeah. And just inequality in general. Yeah. And so it's this thing where you can't calculate the cost of being fat. You're calculating the cost of being part of an oppressed group. Boom. Exactly. Yes. But also what they do is calculate the cost of actual things. 
<laughs> like diabetes or yeah. cardiovascular care or cancer and and then kind of like lump that in with body size. Yeah. And, and then they do like the, they do like this difference between the actual costs and the like costs of like number of health years lost and, you know, like these are the, when it gets completely magical. When yeah. It's like... <laughs> You know, if the person would live for 20 years longer and would make like six times more money. Right. Yeah. Really? And that ends up being like, you know, $60 billion a year. Really? Yeah. Allergists. So when you like, you're like, this is when it gets magical. I'm like, this is where it gets absolutely would fail freshman research methods if you try to pull this in that class. Um, But Allergan did this study and I, it came out all over the place that um, quote unquote obesity cost the workplace $72 billion a year or $73 billion a year, one of those. And so I was like, just as a re- you know, trained researcher, like that's a hard number to get. And so like I paid my 30 bucks and I got my study. And what they did was they found a questionnaire that asked people, how much productivity did you lose in the last seven days due to health issues Oh, on a scale of one to 10? And how many days did you miss in the last seven days due to health issues? Then they assumed that fat people's health issues were due to their size and thin people's were due to something else. Always, yes. And then they used actuarial tables of wages higher than the actual wages of the people to calculate this number. And um, it turns out that the number they calculated was just a little bit more expensive than it would be to give lap bands to everyone. And oh, wait, Allergan, that's right. What are they... They make the lap band. What a coincidence. Yeah, they do. And so how convenient was it for them to be able to use that study to tell insurance it's cheaper to give people lap bands than to let them keep losing all this productivity. And look, we already know because of weight stigma fat, people are hired less, paid less and promoted less. So like we didn't need Allergan to tell our bosses that like we can't Mm -hmm. get to work. And when we do, we can't get shit done because we're just sitting around being fat, I guess. But like that is exact. (laughs) And it got international media attention completely uncritical. I, that drives me up the wall. Oh, like I'm sorry, Allegan, the kind-hearted gastric band <laughs> makers have not uncovered a treasure chest of truth here. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, and then you just see the headlines. It's the same with the COVID. You know, yeah. all of these headlines around COVID and uh, size, and it's like this has been rotten from the beginning. It's rotten now. It will continue to be rotten. Like, you know, that is like what happens. Like we see, like if we start from a bullshit assumption, then the the ball of bullshit just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we just start kind of branching off into other, like it's like a galaxy of bullshit. Yeah. An interesting, a really impactful little thing I've been doing in talks with um, healthcare providers is talking about, there's a study um, in 2009, there was an H1N1 outbreak in the States and fat people had much worse outcomes. Yeah. And so all of this research came out, oh, it must be receptor sites. It must be that it's multiplying in the fat cells. It must be cascade inflammation. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, Sun et al. did a retrospective and they found, nope, thin people were given treatment before fat people. (laughs) That explains the entire difference. Okay. And just watching people's faces. Cause I'm like, you know, it's the same claims that are being made in COVID now. And the same way it was like treated like a fact, like fat being fat causes negative outcomes. And it turns out no medical weight stigma caused yeah. worse outcomes. Yeah. Having years of stigmatizing events and all of the implications on your body from that. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. And it's not a fat cell. Let's stop blaming fat cells for everything. Exactly. Or anything. And like, 
Bacon and Aframore found that the entirety of excess mortality that was attributed to obesity in Framingham and the NHANES um, could very well be from the negative effects of weight cycling or yo-yo dieting. And so again, people aren't controlling for that. And so they're just saying if fat people have a higher incidence of a health condition, well, it must be their body size and being thin must be the cure. And again, that is first day of research methods information. You cannot do that. I mean, you can, but you can't call it good science. But you know, this is a beautiful kind of return to our starting point because just five to 10%, which we've established is cyclical. Mm-hmm. But that just 5 to 10% weight loss can cause the outcomes that the headlines are screaming about. And yeah. then we're going to double down and blame it on your body size. Yeah. And then you see the intersection, right? Where, oh, fat people uh, have worse outcomes from COVID. So being thin, being fat must be the cause, being thin must be. And then the weight loss industry swoops in, you know, and says, oh, well, then we have to do like weight loss for these people. And we have a program. So just like get on board, like the UK, like I think it was Slimming World, right? Jumped right in with the government. And to suggest that it was a social responsibility to lose weight because you're now, again, that quote unquote drain on society, even if it was true, that would be a eugenics argument. But it's so frustrating because weight loss isn't, it's not just that it fails all the time. It's that failure is not benign. Failure at weight loss, weight cycling comes with physical harm. Yeah. Yeah. And psychological harm. And psychological harm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So selling weight loss is perpetuating harm. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. What an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. This has been such a best part of my day. Thank you. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> um, but keep doing what you're doing and just, yes, look after yourself because you are a precious resource <laughs> in our Hayes world. Thank you. And likewise, I am just honored to be in community with you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Boom. You are welcome. How completely awesome is Reagan Chastain. I am just blown away by that conversation and I hope you really, really enjoyed it. And I'm sure you're now fascinated to find out more about this woman who is Reagan Chastain. How can I find out more about her? You can go to Insta Reagan Chastain. So R-A-G-E-N-C-H-A-S-T-A-I-N. Or you can go to danceswithfat.org to find out heaps more about Reagan and everything she is doing. She is a powerhouse, as you have heard, and I'm very, very grateful. So I hope you really enjoyed that episode, everybody. I am completely pumped because the rest of this year is going to be outrageously amazingly fired up and I can't wait to bring it to you. In the meantime, if there is something about diet culture that's really really getting your goat. I want to hear about it. So send me an email, louise at untrapped.com.au and we'll see if we can process the rage here on the podcast. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening, giving me some of your time. Stay safe, look after yourself and I can't wait to talk to you very soon. In the meantime, trust your body, think critically, push back against diet culture. Untrapped from the crap. 